the basic Christian confession, the most basic of confessions for anyone who follows Jesus is, is three little words, Jesus is Lord. That's a way of saying Jesus calls the shots in my life. Jesus runs the show. My life, my destiny are now in his hands. And by the way, the Bible says the way you make that declaration, the way you proclaim to the world that Jesus is Lord of your life is through this thing called baptism. It's where you go down into the water and then you are pulled up as a way of saying, Jesus, the one who died, defeated death, and rose again, I'm with him. I am one of his. And last week, um, or actually two weeks ago at Easter, we had 53 people declare, not that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is my Lord. Yeah, that's pretty cool. There's like never-ending baptisms. People, people like Easter dinner is a bit going and we're just going to hang out forever. So it was a lot of fun. Um, but it's pretty amazing when you think about 53 people wanting to say to the world is a part of our church family right in that tank, Jesus is my Lord. And, and this series that we're launching today is really a follow-up to that reality. It's this series where we're looking at the teaching of Jesus and we're asking him to help us think again about what it looks like when he's Lord in some specific areas. Because when we declare Jesus is Lord, it's not like it's just this instantaneous thing where he becomes the Lord of every part of our life. We say, Jesus, you're Lord. And actually what we're saying is, Jesus, I invite you to come start being Lord in my life. And then he does. He moves in and he starts saying, okay, I'll be Lord of that. I'll be in charge of that. I'll take this, the driver's seat on that in your life. I'll change that about you. And slowly but surely, he becomes Lord over all the very various particulars of our existence. And some of those things, we are so happy to hand over to him, right? Like, yeah, be Lord of that. Take that off my plate. I didn't like being in charge of that anyway, Jesus. But then there's a few other things that are a little harder. We actually enjoy being in control. We like having the steering wheel. And so Jesus says, can I be Lord? And you say, maybe, let's wait a little while. And yet Jesus will continue, once we've made that declaration, to pursue us and chase us down until he is Lord of every single area of our lives. And in this series, we're talking again, we're allowing Jesus to tell us about what it looks like when he begins to move into those places, some of those places that were maybe a little resistant to him being in charge of. And today's subject is Jesus asking us to think again about what it looks like when he is Lord in the midst of annoyance and anger and frustration that we have with other people. How does Jesus call us to respond when someone really makes us mad? What does it look like to, to have him be Lord even when we're experiencing anger and even hatred towards other people? What does it look like for Jesus to be Lord when we're cut off in traffic? When an official makes a bad call against the Blazers? God's team. When the pastor's sermon, although it's brilliant, goes just a bit too long, how do we respond with thankfulness and gratitude because Jesus is Lord? I don't write, I just read them, I don't write them. Uh, when our kids make us late or break our stuff or disobey or 
get under our skin. When our spouse doesn't act the way that we've asked them to act so many times before, what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord? When a coworker flippantly does something that causes you a lot more work. When family members say or do something that opens old wounds. When friends betray a confidence or make cutting remarks about us. When someone is ungrateful in the midst of your generosity. What does it look like to respond in a way that says Jesus is Lord? And so think with me for a moment. When was the last time you were angry or even outraged at someone? When was the last time someone wronged you or hurt you and that ignited resentment or bitterness in your heart? Think about the last time you were angry and how you responded. What did you say? What did you do? Maybe even more probing, what are the thoughts and feelings that ran through your mind and heart? Well, this morning, Jesus wants to talk about that. He wants to talk about being Lord of even these moments. And today, he's going to tackle this subject by answering three questions for us. He's going to ask, what is the real issue? Where do we find the solution? And how important is it? What is the real issue here? Where do we find the solution? And how important is it? First of all, what's the real issue? Or what's the real problem? Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible today, you can pull it out, open to Matthew chapter 5. If you want to use a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's fine. The, the scripture passages will also be on the screen today. But in this passage, Jesus is talking about frustration, annoyance, anger, hatred, and how we respond and what it looks like to make Jesus Lord even of these moments. Here's what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. Jesus, he's always so nice. It makes things, you know, easy to palate. Uh, first of all, let's get really clear here uh, on what Jesus is doing, what he's, what he's up to. Because he's teaching about and he's speaking to, as he often does, what we would call conventional wisdom of the day or the prevailing attitudes of society. This is why he starts by saying, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. In other words, what he's saying is, most of you operate and live your life with this sort of an attitude. This is standard practice and belief for you in this world, in this society where you live. This is kind of how most people roll. And in Jesus' day, that prevailing attitude went something like this. The scriptures tell us not to murder, and so to be good people, to be a good person, a righteous person, a person who lives for God is to be a person who doesn't murder, or even a bit more broadly, a person who doesn't do physical harm to someone when they upset you, a person who doesn't seek vengeance in a physical way. But in this passage, Jesus is teaching us that 
To think this way is to miss something, specifically the heart of God. He's saying, you may have the letter of the law, but you have missed the spirit of the law. Because the heart of God, the spirit of the law, the thing that is behind this command to not murder is to see each human being as one who bears the image of their heavenly father. Jesus says, if you miss that truth, if you miss that as the founding principle, then you will miss the point. In fact, in the very first place, this command, this command to not murder shows up in the Old Testament. It comes right in the section about Noah. If you remember the story of Noah in the Old Testament, things in the world have gone south. Things have gotten so vile and evil and deranged and decrepit. There's so much injustice happening in the world that God decides we just need to start over. And in that restart, he wants to be really clear and he says, whoever sheds human blood, Genesis 9-6, by humans shall their blood be shed. He says there's, there's a, a severe judgment for harming another human being. And Jesus is talking about that. He's talking about this severe judgment that everybody understood if you were to commit murder, if you were to harm another human being. But he, sa- he goes on. He says, by humans shall their blood be shed for, for, and here's why, in the image of God has God made mankind. That's the founding principle. You see, there's severe judgment for harming another person. Why? Because every human being is infinitely precious and of infinite value because of the image they bear and because who they were created by. Let me give you this example. I looked up on the internet this week that in November of 2017, this painting that you'll see on the screens called the Salvatore Mundi was sold a record sale, the highest amount paid for a painting in the history of the world. Any guesses how much this painting sold for in November of 2017? $450 million. $450 million for that painting right there. And I know that it is a painting of Jesus and all, but if I'm honest, it seems just a bit overpriced to me. <laughs> just a bit, you know? I mean, I know it's Jesus, but he looks fairly pale, uh, kind of depressed even. I'm sure he never wore that outfit. <laughs> and he's holding some sort of crystal ball, which is at best historically inaccurate and at worst theologically heretical since as far as I know Jesus didn't do crystal ball sorts of stuff. So the question is why? Why is this painting worth so much money? Why would someone pay 450 million dollars for this really bad picture of Jesus? Why? Because of who painted it. And that person was Leonardo da Vinci. This painting was created by the master. It has his touch, his style, his creativity, and his craftsmanship woven into its very existence. Friends, what Jesus is calling us to remember about every single human being is that they are the craftsmanship of the God of the universe. Every single person you meet, 
Every single person that cuts you off in traffic, every single person that gets in front of you at the grocery store in the 15 items or less line when they clearly have 20 items, even that lady is a workmanship of our heavenly father. And so Jesus says, when I am Lord of your life, it is not enough to just avoid murder. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, let Let's get clear about something here. Is Jesus in this passage saying that Christians are never allowed to get angry? Is he? It seems like it. It sure seems like that's what he's saying, doesn't it? But he's not. We know this because we just finished a series, an entire series on biblical justice and how when injustice and oppression and prejudice and cruelty happens in our world, it angers God and it should anger us when we have God's heart. Jesus himself got angry when people used and mistreated others. He specifically got angry when people were taken advantage of in the name of God. Anger, friends, is the right response to things in this world not being right. Anger, in the right context, is a normal and even even a righteous emotion. If you have been abused or mistreated, it is okay to be angry about it because that is not right and it does not please the heart of God. He is angry and you should be as well. We should all be angry when we see people treated wrongly, not like image bearers. When Jesus says anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment, he uses a very specific word. In the Greek language, there were actually two words for anger. The first word is the word thumos, and it's anger that blazes up quickly and then dies away. It's like lighting a pile of straw on fire. Whoosh, and it's gone. And then there's the word that Jesus uses in this passage. It's Orgezo, and it's a long-lived anger. This is the anger of a person who holds on to bitterness or resentment in their heart and will not allow it to die, will not seek to put it out. And Jesus is saying, when you do that, when you nurse a grudge against another human being, there is something so damaging And you demean the life of one who bears bears the image of God. In other words, Jesus says, we all know that murder kills people, but resentment and bitterness and unresolved anger has just as much power to destroy a human life as does murder. And then he hashes out what that looks like. He says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Now, I know a lot of you in here are thinking, sweet, I've never said to somebody, raka. Like, I'm, I, there's, I've done a lot of bad stuff and I've said some things, but I've never said raka. Now, and so I might be off the hook on this one. Guess not. Think again. Raka is actually a word that technically means you nobody. It's a word that says, you are worthless. You are senseless. You do not matter to me. But here's what's interesting about this word raka. Most scholars believe that this word is less about something you would say. It's not a word that people would would use and say to each other. It was more about an attitude that people would have towards another 
person. Raka is more about your attitude, your posture towards someone than it is about the words you would speak. In fact, Raka uh, actually can refer to even the tone of voice you would use, the tone of voice you'd speak to someone with. It's kind of like when you ask your kids to do a chore around the house, right? You say, hey kids, I need I need you to, or I need one of you to go and pick up the dog poop in the backyard, which is the lowest of the chores in our family, right? It's the one no one wants. It's the one that when Amy asks me to do it, I in turn pass it on to one of the children, <laughs> right? And so no one wants to do that. You say, hey, will one of you do this? And if you say, hey, what, you do this? And the answer is, okay, I'll do it. That's a, that's a really different response than, okay, I'll do it. See, same words. But tone of voice matters. Our tone of voice communicates just as much as the words being spoken. Tim Keller says, the heart of what Jesus is getting at here when he uses this word raka is the posture of indifference. Raka is the posture of indifference towards another. It's this attitude that now that we've had conflict, now that you have made me mad, now that you've upset me or hurt me, I will hold on to that anger by just ignoring you. I'll avoid you. I'll neglect you. I'll look through you. You're dead to me. I don't have to pursue reconciliation. Why? Because you're a nobody. You don't matter that much. You don't have enough value to me for me to do the work of settling our anger, settling our disagreement. And so the question is, do you have anyone in your life these days who you've said raka to? Anyone who you've written off or that you've become indifferent to or Someone who you are just passive aggressively choosing to ignore or avoid or interact with less because you're hurt or mad or angry. And maybe you're doing it slowly and maybe you're just doing it subtly, but underneath is this passive aggressive reality. You don't care about them. They're nobody to you. Jesus finally goes on to say, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And sometimes we read Jesus and we think, man, I better not say you fool because that's a pretty stiff punishment for saying you fool. What Jesus is saying here is he's trying to communicate the the very damaging reality of holding on to anger and bitterness. He's speaking hyperbolically, right? He's saying like, this is what awaits you. This This is what you will be doing to yourself if you take this approach, if you hold on to these things in your heart. And, and the phrase here, you fool, is the Greek word moros. Moros is a slam on another person's character or on their moral reputation. It's where we get the English word moron. Like, yeah, you moron. And here's where we have Jesus talking about the power of the tongue, the power of our words. He's saying, To murder can also mean to kill a person's confidence. To not just kill them with our hands, but to kill them with our tongues. Because when you call someone a moron, when you use a degrading word, the reason you do it is because you hope they'll believe you. 
When you demean someone with your tongue, the goal is, I hope they believe me. Why? Because they've hurt me, because they've frustrated me, because they've inconvenienced me. They have made me angry, and now I want them to pay. I want them to hurt as well. And when they do, when they catch that word from our tongues, we have put a dagger in a part of their heart and soul that no surgeon can remove. There's a commercial out right now. Um, it's playing throughout the NBA playoffs, which if you haven't picked up on it, I'm watching a little bit. And, uh, and it's a commercial on bullying. And I think it's just so well done. Every time it comes on, it sort of captures me. And it starts with this young girl, I think middle school, young high school age girl. And she's sitting on a school bus and she's sitting there um, on one of those school bus seats, you know, the green sort of fake leather seats they have. And she's sitting on the school bus and she's looking right into the camera and she just says, you know, I know that it was a joke, but it really hurt. And there's just a pause and you think, I wonder what was said. I wonder who said it. Because there's been some damage done. There's a wound in this young girl's soul that doesn't come from a fist or from a weapon. It comes from a tongue. See, Jesus says there is more than one way to degrade and debase and demean and belittle the image bearers of God in this world. Another way we do this is to call someone a moron, but not to their face, but behind their back. Another way we can kill is to kill someone's reputation. And in our anger, we are so tempted to do this. We're so tempted to speak ill of people that we're in conflict with. And here's why. We feel justified in doing it. They did this to me. They were in the wrong. I'm just sharing the facts. And so we tell people and we talk about them and we say things about their character and we very carefully and sometimes subtly insinuate that they are not the person everyone thinks they are. We kill them. We kill their reputation. You see, in this opening section, Jesus is saying, look at your heart. He's saying, this to people who think they're righteous because they don't murder. And he's saying the truth about your life is that even though you don't murder, you're filled with anger. You're filled with bitterness. You're filled with resentment. You're filled with hostility. You inflict pain on people deliberately. Very often you do this in sneaky and subtle ways, but you do it. In fact, Jesus says, everything that's in a murderer is in you. Whoa. Whoa. Just like everything that's in an oak tree is in an acorn. But some acorns get planted and some don't. You see, all this stuff in your heart is the same stuff that's in the heart of a murderer, but that person just got planted in a different place than you got planted. You, religious people, tempted to think that you're better than them? Jesus says, all this stuff's in your heart. The problem is with your heart. 
He says, you think the real issue is physical vengeance, but I'm telling you that in my kingdom, when I'm Lord of your life, you won't just avoid physical vengeance, you'll avoid relational vengeance and emotional vengeance. And none of those things and none of those words will flow from your heart and from your mouth any longer. You see, Jesus says the real problem is not what you do or don't do, it's your heart. Jesus is not trying to augment your behavior, he's trying to change your soul. So where do we find the solution? If our hearts are as corrupt and depraved as murderers, what is the solution? Here's what Jesus says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, This passage has been preached many, many times, and most often it's preached this way. If you are in conflict, if you have unresolved bitterness, hurt, anger with somebody, then you probably shouldn't be in worship. You probably shouldn't come to church. And I want to say, I don't think this is true. I don't think Jesus is giving us new rules about church attendance. He's not saying, you can't attend if you have unresolved conflict. If he is, we might be a much smaller group. You may not even have a preacher. (laughs) The point of Jesus' teaching is to describe what it's like to live when he is Lord of your life. He says, where where does this change happen? Where that stuff in your heart that leads to murder, that, that stuff in your heart that destroys people and kills people, where does that change? And he tells us where, in this passage, the transformation happens. Where does the transformation happen? At the altar. You notice this? When this person that Jesus is telling the story about shows up at the altar, all of a sudden, it's through showing up at the altar, it's by coming to worship the God of the universe that all of a sudden there's this revelation. I'm not right with Bill. I'm not right with Lisa. There's something not going, there's something going down between me and my wife, me and my mom, me and my friend, me and my boss. All of a sudden, this revelation that things need to be made right with this other person happens when we worship. You see, Jesus is not interested in more rules. He's not just offering like bigger and badder rules for us. In fact, he starts this whole section right before um, the passage we read in verse 20. He says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they were the most moral people of the day. They not only had the most rules, they were the best rule followers of anybody. And so Jesus here is not saying, hey, you gotta have more rules and better rules even than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You gotta like, behave better than even they do. No, he's saying, no, I'm not about rules. I'm about changing your heart. I'm interested in transforming you from the inside out. And what will do that? Worship. You see, often we think of worship as just the singing of songs. That's, and that's part of worship. That's part of what it means to worship. That's kind of a ex- very explicit way of worshiping. But worship is really about something deeper. You know what worship is about? 
Worship is about the affections of your heart. Worship is about what you allow your heart to be thrilled with, what you allow your heart to be most excited about, what you're allowing to capture your imagination, what you are allowing to motivate you. And when you worship something, that something begins to shape you and change you and transform you from in here into out here. It doesn't change what you do. First, it changes who you are. That's what Jesus is after. And so he says, you want to have a different attitude. You want to have a different heart. You want to have a different posture towards these people in your life that are hard, that are difficult, that have hurt you. Well, let's get together. Let's do some worship. Let me change you from the inside out. Because worship really is this moment where we stand before God And we remember that he went to great lengths, that he embraced tremendous humility to make things right with us. That he made the first move to settle the conflict between him and you. And that reality, that truth that God decided not to nurse a grudge or hold on to anger in the face of our sin. When that soaks into your heart, it will change you and transform you when you understand how God moves in towards us in in the face of conflict. That'll empower us to move in with others. Not to make you a more religious person. Not in order to give you more stringent rules to follow. See, the answer, Jesus says, is go meet with God. Go stand face to face with the God who gave his life for you, who set aside his anger and bitterness and resentment so that he could be restored in right relationship with you. You go spend time with that God, and that God will change your heart, and your changed heart will change your relationships with people out in the world. And then Jesus talks about the urgency. He says, and how important is this? How important is this issue really? How important is this issue of unresolved conflict and anger and bitterness and hostility? Here's what he says. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. But Jesus is doing here is he's using a common image of his day to make a very strong point. Because the deal was, in the ancient world, most of the time, you just had to work out your differences one-on-one. They didn't have an elaborate court system. They didn't have like, you know, seven circuit judges and this process and these lawyers. It was like, work it out, work it out, work it out. If you could not work it out, if you decided not to work it out, If you avoided the person who you had wronged, if you put off dealing with your debts, they would come, they would drag you to court, and if you were drugged to court and you had neglected to proactively pursue making things right and you were in the wrong, you were in deep trouble. The courts were not merciful back then. It was a bad deal to get drugged into court. And Jesus is saying this, anger in your heart unresolved bitterness in your spirit, that will not be merciful to you either. You think that judge, you think that ancient court was harsh, this anger will destroy you. Friends, is there something between you and someone else? Jesus' words today, 
Do not let that fester. Be proactive. Get before God, allow him to change your heart and then do your best to deal with it now before it turns into something it shouldn't, before it turns into something more, before you end up paying a price that you don't want to pay. Oh, it'll be fine. I've ignored it for years. It's not affecting me at all. You do keep telling yourself that. They were the one who's in the wrong. They should come to me. I'll just wait here until they do. I'm all right. You keep telling yourself that. A few years back, my wife and I, we were early married in our younger, inexperienced years. We had a fight, the only fight of our marriage. Um, <laughs> no, actually, we didn't have a fight. There was no fight. We've had some fights. There's no fight. I just remember that my feelings got hurt. There was some frustration and some bitterness and some anger that I felt. And we just allowed it to sit for a while. And hours turned to days, and days turned to weeks. And so we're going on three or four weeks, not getting along, being sort of short and snippy with each other, not really even talking. And by the end of that three or four weeks, I just remember thinking a few things. I remember thinking, I am miserable. She is a way better fighter than I am. She is so much better at the silent treatment than I am. I remember saying, like, this is kicking my rear. There's no part of my life that's filled with joy anymore. It wasn't just my time with her that was ruined. My work, I was trying to pastor in the middle of this. I was a youth pastor. It was just terrible. And here's the, here's, here's the best part. I couldn't even remember what the fight was about. I'd completely forgotten what it was that had sort of miffed me at the beginning. We were just in this long-standing, festering, ugly thing, and it was terrible, and it was killing me, and it was ruining me. And I think it was ruining her, too. I can't remember, but um, I'm pretty sure it was. Friends, Jesus says, that is terrible for your soul. It will kill you. It's a, it's a long, slow, painful death. When you let relationships sit in that place of anger, frustration, bitterness, and resentment. Friends, this morning, I don't know what the most important thing on your to-do list today is, but if you have a relationship that is not in the right place, Jesus says reconciling that relationship must be of the highest importance. Jesus says you come you come and you worship. You come and you remind yourself and you remember that God made the first move when you were in the wrong, when you had made him angry, when he had every right to be full of vengeance and bitterness and annoyance and frustration with you. He made the first move towards you to say, I want things to be right between us. And when you are filled with that love and grace that comes from our God, let that change your heart. And then you go and you make the first move, whatever move that is that you need to make with that other person, even if they're in the wrong, even if they wronged you. I had to do it this week, friends. I, I, you know, one of the worst things, best things, worst things about preaching is as you preach, you start to go, oh, man, I can't really preach this and not do this. And so I had to send some text messages and try and line up a meeting and say, I need, I need to talk with you about some things because there's some stuff that still needs to be resolved and just leaving it unsettled is not good. Friends, 
Are there any relationships in your life that just aren't right today? Is there someone in this world that you are devaluing by holding a grudge or, or lashing out with cutting remarks by treating them like rock eye, like you really don't care? If you find yourself standing before the Lord this morning, knowing that he is calling you to set, in, set aside important activities of your day, do not ignore that prompting. We're gonna close in a time of worship. And we're going to sing about how holy and righteous and amazing our God is, friends. And here's how you'll know it's worship. Here's how you'll know it's worship and not just singing. When the truths that you're declaring begin to settle in on your heart and soul and change you. And this morning, if you have a person, I'm asking you just to hold that person up during worship. In a figurative sense, just say, God, as I worship you, I need you to speak to me about my heart towards this person. And then you ask God, what are the next steps? Maybe some of you... It's not about a conversation. Maybe the conversations are done. Maybe that's not even the right thing, but it is about your heart posture. It is about what God is doing in you. It is about your attitude. And so you sing this morning with that person in mind and you say, Lord, change me to help me live as if you are in control, specifically as it relates to this relationship. So I'm gonna pray and the worship team's gonna come up and then you'll have a chance to spend some time with God. Father, this morning... We long to be a people who move out into this world, not with just a big banner that says you are Lord, but people who live lives that say you are Lord. And in the hard, messy places, in the places where it's tough, in the places where it costs us something, in the places, Lord, where we have to die to self and we have to lay down our pride, we invite you, Lord, into those places. We invite you to move in and do what only you can do. And so we worship you. We lift up your name and we remember that in the face of our rebellion, you made the first move. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.